Well, uh, privileged to be with, uh, with all of you and um, to get to know some of the folks uh, here at Central. Uh, I, uh, I hope that this morning's talk can be uh, twofold. Uh, one, informative on uh, some larger things uh, I think are happening in the culture relative to entrepreneurship. And then also uh, some ideas that I think uh, whether you're an entrepreneur or, uh, or you're in a, another role in a, in a corporation and you think of yourself entrepreneurially or you think about bringing new ideas into the world, that you can apply those into your own context. Uh, and so I'm going to go for, uh, I'll try to keep it to about 30 minutes. We'll have a few minutes for Q&A. Um, but I want to start uh, with this uh, idea that uh, I want to convince you that we are in a time uh, that I would call the entrepreneurial generation. Uh, we uh, at Praxis, where, uh, where I get the chance to work with entrepreneurs, really believe that the future of culture depends largely on the next generation of entrepreneurs and, and their worldview and how that goes out into the world. Uh, the founder of uh, Twitter and Square, Jack Dorsey, uh, actually said this on the cover of Fortune. He said, the most efficient means to spread an idea today is corporate structure. I actually believe that this is different than any other time in history and that if you want to take something out into the world, uh, you do that through entrepreneurial means. This is a, a similar uh, way of getting, that, getting at that visually. Uh, if you'll uh, go with me here, uh, you, you, an entrepreneur starts out with the seed of an idea, and they, they want to put form and structure around it, and they create these organizations right? that uh, we all interact with. They shape the employees uh, and the culture of an organization around it, and they start to shape the stakeholders around that, the people they interact with, the people they sell to, buy from. Uh, the larger, uh, larger world around their organization. And then as they do that, as those stakeholders change uh, through those interactions, so goes the, uh, the best practices of industry, uh, industries that, that come back and, and ultimately, in their collective nature, shape what we call culture. Uh, that could be a nonprofit industry, a business industry. It could be specific industries of, of fashion or technology or what have you. Uh, but this is the way that uh, largely our world takes shape. Now, we're all familiar with, uh, with entrepreneurship in different ways, but part of my case that this is an entrepreneurial generation is the way that we see it represented in the culture and the role that entrepreneurs now play in our imagination. Uh, you're probably familiar with at least one of the images here. Um, we have uh, the, one of the best-selling books uh, of, of Steve Jobs, um, one of a, a guy who's not simply an entrepreneur in our world but is a, a cultural icon, a celebrity, if you will. Uh, you have on the opposite end here a parody show on HBO, which I don't know how that uh, <laughs> is internalized, but you can actually see uh, the characters here are mimicking uh, Jobs and uh, his, his uh, icon iconography on uh, the, the, the book here. Um, you also have uh, primetime television shows where now all of America wants to watch uh, us pitch. Right? They want to hear what entrepreneurs are, are offering to the world uh, through things like Shark Tank. And, and then this uh, is actually one of my favorite examples. This are, uh, is a, a couple of New Yorkers, actually, uh, Dennis Crowley and Naveen Salvarudi. They are the, the founders of, of Foursquare, the technology app where you can check in where you are. And this is actually from a few years ago, but this is a Gap ad campaign where they were featured uh, to, to sell clothes uh, alongside rock stars and movie stars. I think that's a really good example of how people see the entrepreneur in our world today. And that, that cultural influence comes with uh, both... Uh, a certain obligation to be uh, stewards of the culture and a responsibility, and it comes with risk, right? Because we're now, like we've done with athletes historically, putting entrepreneurs into the position of role model and expecting them to uh, represent our society in a particular way. All of this, um, the, the ecosystem of capital, the ability to take ideas into the world, the influence, the opportunity for fame, all this stuff has 
uh, collided into this idea that I think for the next generation, the millennial generation and beyond, they want to be entrepreneurs. The Kauffman Foundation did a large study and found that 54% of millennials have started a venture or would like to join a startup in some capacity. Now, whether they go on to do this is uh, to be determined, but the interest is there, and they see entrepreneurship as a great destination for their vocational path. At the same time, we have uh, large institutions, I would say, at the intersection of the university and the incubator that are starting to define our society around entrepreneurship. They're multidisciplinary, typically community-oriented, well-backed, and, and highly ambitious. You're probably familiar with some of these, whether it's Y Combinator, which has kind of become the tech uh, Harvard of uh, the, uh, the startup community, uh, TED, who is globally distributing ideas, the MIT Media Lab in Boston, the design school at Stanford, all these different groups have a different vision for society, perhaps at the most extreme edge with the Singularity University, who is looking to help us uh, realize our future as um, the merger of humans and machines. Uh, that's a whole nother talk. Uh, they're all doing this together, as we should. Uh, there's social theory behind this. If you're familiar with James Davison Hunter, his book, To Change the World, he said this, the key actor in history is not individual genius, so it's not actually the single entrepreneur, but it's the network and the new institutions that are created out of these networks. And that's what these, these organizations represent. Um, but unfortunately, uh, during this time of unprecedented change in entrepreneurship, a lot of the times societal progress is being defined without the gospel in the room. Uh, which has tragic short-term but long-term consequences. Uh, and for the benefit of everyone, we believe that we need to bring this, uh, this Christian imagination back to the edge of the culture. That's a lot of what we try to do at Praxis. And uh, we're, there's, there's signs of life. There's bright spots. Uh, these are uh, representative of 125 different entrepreneurs we've worked with across the world, across different sectors, be it education, housing, healthcare, genomics, fashion, what have you, uh, that are trying to be the body of Christ. And we believe that in this entrepreneurial generation, there's a unique opportunity here where entrepreneurs, instead of uh, simply uh, telling the gospel, are actually uh, demonstrating it through their ventures. Uh, and we need both of those things. We need people who are, uh, are living out their orthodoxy through orthopraxy, which is kind of where our name comes from organizationally. And they, that these entrepreneurs can be these winsome cultural witnesses out in the society that are interacting uh, with others in the marketplace and other sectors. So that's a quick case for the entrepreneurial generation. Uh, and I want to talk a little bit now about this last piece. What does it look like for an entrepreneur to create a demonstrated apologetic through their hands? Uh, how can we actually have a case for our faith in the fabric of the things that we make? Uh, and, <clears throat> and this way, I want to position this as an idea around an alternative imagination that we should have as believers in the world. I want to start with a quote from... A, uh, a famous book uh, from a, an advertiser on Madison Avenue in 1939. Uh, a guy wrote a book called The Technique for Producing Ideas because I think it gets at how uh, we should think about training our mind. Listen to what he says. He says, What is most valuable to know is not where to look for a particular idea, but how to train the mind in the method by which all ideas are produced and how to grasp the principles which are at the source of all ideas. The production of ideas, too, runs on an assembly line that in this production the mind follows an operative technique which can be learned and controlled, and that its effective use is just, a matter of, just as much a matter of practice in the technique as it is in the effective use of any tool. What he's getting at here is that we can actually form and shape our minds, especially when it comes to creative acts, uh, in a particular direction. And we're all oriented to something. 
it begs the question <clears throat> for me that we have to all ask is where do our ideas come from? Sometimes we think they're kind of manifested out of thin air, uh, but it's not, not true if, uh, according to this author. Uh, <clears throat> and I think it also makes us ask, what is a good idea anyway? A lot of times we throw that, that idea around. Oh, you've got a good idea. That's a good idea. What does it mean to have a good idea? I think there's some default cultural norms that we in, in, interpret and inherit uh, when we talk about things like that. And in the context of this, and this idea of an imagination, which I think is connected to these ideas that we come up with, uh, I want us to think about, personally, three areas where we kind of curate our heart and curate our mind. Uh, one is the, the things we study, obviously. Uh, that's not just in the collegiate setting or uh, education formally, but it's the books we decide to read. Uh, it's also our heart, how we, how we shape this. Uh, James K. Smith from Calvin College has talked a lot about this in his uh, cultural liturgies books about how we curate our heart, uh, how we how the, the the habits that we form, uh, the practices we take on, uh, ultimately shape our loves and our desires and the things that we pursue. Sometimes these things are dangerously subconscious until we bring them up to the surface and they pull us in a particular direction. And then ultimately, that our context and our community really shapes who we are, what we think about, and the places that we uh, that we might imagine working. Um, we see this uh, happening dozens of different ways. My, my, my favorite way to, to simplify this is they say you're the average of the five people that you spend the most time with. We get to choose who those five people are, and that shapes the direction of us. So take this. We all have a starting point for our ideas and our imagination, right? And I think for the entrepreneur, uh, particularly, uh, the default technique puts the market first. It says, hey, where's the world going to go? What's the financial opportunity? And let's, let's go for it. That's how we define a good idea. It's not necessarily a bad idea, uh, but I think there's more possibility here. It starts right now. We just say, if we, can, if we can make it and it's viable, we should do it, generally as a culture. I think this has led to a bit of a crisis of imagination, really at the conceptual level of what do we decide to create? Why do we decide to pursue certain things? How do, what do we commit our lives to? Karl Barth said this, uh, which I love. He says, the church exists in the world to set up a new sign which is radically dissimilar to the world's own manner and which contradicts it in a way that is full of promise. If we believe that's to be, that to be true, and I, I think we should, uh, it asks us, how do we reorient our imaginations? Can we, can we hope for more? Should we be looking at what's going on in the culture, disrupting these negative trends that we engage with, and encouraging positive things, looking to create in, innovative and transformative gospel-minded ventures. This actually is not just a matter of doing different things, I think. It's actually a matter of reorienting our technique for producing ideas. Uh, to start with uh, something I'll call design for renewal, which is uh, starting with theology and culture first, saying what do we understand to be true about the world, and then where, how do we go from there? So we have to have this deep theological understanding to start. That, that begs uh, that we would have some depth of thinking around what is on God's heart, who is he, what is, and how did he ultimately make us as humans, as people in the world. It also asks us to do some really serious cultural exegesis right now in this moment. We say, what is going on right now in our world? Sometimes we have a short-term horizon on this, but it actually, actually asks us, I think, to be uh, historians in a lot of ways and go back over time and understand what about this current generation in history? How does it relate to different times? Uh, Kevin Van Hooser, in a book called Everyday Theology, uh, writes really effectively about how we do this. 
He says that a multi-perspectival cultural interpretation uses a variety of academic disciplines and approaches to illumine what is going on in the cultural discourse. To get light from various sources, we have to be light on our feet, prepared to move between history, economics, psychology, sociology, film studies, architectural engineering, marketing, and of course, theology. This is challenging, right? It asks us, no matter what sector we're participating in, to have a really broad view of what's going on and how we got there. Also, I think in a beautiful way, it challenges us to work together because clearly we, almost no one, is all of these things, right? We actually need each other to get different perspectives and it causes us to go outside of our traditional boxes and communities to get different perspectives on what we're making and the consequences of it downstream on the culture. Put much more simply, in the uh, beautiful wise words of Dallas Willard, understanding is the basis of care. What you would take care of first, you must understand whether it be a petunia or a nation. I think for the entrepreneur at least, myself included, a lot of times the posture is to act first and then understand later. Uh, So this is asking for a little bit of a reorientation of process, knowing that all of these things are always happening at the same time, of course. But this is uh, actually not enough. Um, This allows us to understand what's going on now. But if we want to really shape our world, we have to understand what's going to happen in the future. Let's say culture today is actually a product of someone's vision over 10 years ago, just the way the world works. Uh, A simple example we can probably all relate to in this room is Whole Foods, right? This picture on top is the first Whole Foods. It was called Safer Way. It was a uh, sort of hippie commune grocery store. John Mackey, the CEO, is somewhere in there. This is 1979. Safer Way was a critique uh, of the brand of Safeway. It was starting to produce processed foods, frozen dinners, all these things uh, that Mackey was experiencing uh, as a child and grew up with and didn't like. This is obviously Whole Foods today, uh, 37 years later. Uh, We kind of interpret this as being ubiquitous and a bit of an overnight success, maybe the last 10 years. If you think about the long thesis that was driven out of this small community that ultimately reshaped the way we think about food, the way we interact with food, supply chains of food, uh, even down into all the other grocery stores. Really, Whole Foods has has reshaped uh, what is sold on the shelves of the Walmart superstore in many ways. So this is this long long horizon. Uh, An investor here in the city, probably the most uh, successful and famous uh, seed investor of our time, Fred Wilson at Union Square Ventures, uh, says this about how they think about investing even. He says, thesis-driven investing involves drawing a picture of where your particular area of focus is going. I like to take a five to 10 year view. And once you've mapped out that picture, it becomes your thesis. And you evaluate every investment you make in the context of that thesis. I love to think about this, like could we do this for ourselves in the place that we occupy? Whatever role you have, whether you run an organization, you're inside of one, what's your thesis for where your sector is going And where do you actually want it to go if you could bend it in the right direction? Without a thesis, Fred would just be running around, looking at deals, throwing money at things, not really disciplined on where his energies and his capital is going. This should be true for the way we think about all of our capital, financial, social, relational, spiritual, and so on. So then when we have these ideas, when we have these theological and cultural insights that drive to a thesis, we can actually use them as a generative construct. I think sometimes we internalize our faith 
as a constraining device. It means we can't do this and we can't do that and we need to be ethical and it, and it takes this big world that everyone lives in and it shrinks it down. But I want to make the case that theology and culture can expand possibilities, give us new insights into places that uh, we might not actually have formerly looked. And then it allows us to create with cultural intent. That's this idea of redemptive entrepreneurship, um, that we could uh, create in this kind of seamless intersection of theology and culture and entrepreneurship, where we're understanding the world and we're creatively responding to the opportunities that we see uh, as entrepreneurial and creative beings, which, by the way, all of you are created in the image of God. John Butman uh, said this in Harvard Business Review about this type of entrepreneur, um, kind of from a secular perspective, but I really like this. He said, there's a new player emerging on the cultural and business scene today. It's the idea entrepreneur. The idea entrepreneur is an individual whose main goal is to influence how other people think and behave in relation to their cherished topic. I want to come back to that last word in a minute, or that last phrase in a minute, but I want to give you a couple examples of entrepreneurs in our community who we've seen do this, embrace being an ideal entrepreneur uh, with a theological and cultural vision for their work. This is Ben and Laura Harrison. Ben and Laura live in Grand Rapids, Michigan. They're the founders of a company called Jonas Paul Eyewear. Uh, this here is Jonas Paul. Uh, Jonas is a wonderful, uh, wonderful little kid uh, who upended the Harrison's life uh, when they found out that he was born blind. Uh, an amazing uh, moment of creation of life and uh, uh, wrestling of how to deal with this suffering. Jonas Paul has had uh, 21 surgeries now um, and reclaimed a little bit of his eyesight. And in this process, somehow, which is, I think, true for a lot of suffering in the world, creativity came out of it. And Ben and Laura said, you know what? One of the hardest things for our son will be and one of the hardest things for kids is the stigmatization in the culture around glasses at a young age. It's kind of a weird thing if you think about it. When you're in second and third grade, you're four eyes, and then when you're in high school, you want to buy the cool Warby Parkers even if you don't have a sight problem, right? It's this interesting thing. So they said, how can we create fashion-forward glasses for kids to increase their confidence as they go into the schools uh, as they need that, as they need uh, corrective lenses? And uh, this, this has been uh, an, an expression, obviously, of their life, of their view of how God views children, of their analysis of a cultural problem, and they're doing it through a very practical way. As you can imagine, uh, this is a demonstrated apologetic to the people around them who said, how are you dealing with this? What do you, what do you mean you've created this, this beautiful company to bless other kids in the midst of your own suffering and challenges? Another example uh, is uh, Jessica Ray. Uh, Jessica is an actress and entrepreneur in Los Angeles. She was one of the... Uh, original Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, uh, the purple one. And uh, Jessica was uh, in, in Los Angeles and interacting with some of her, her friends uh, about seven years ago. And uh, they, were, they were discussing the, the, uh, the expectations around what women wear in the world and uh, the, the role of, uh, of particularly, in her case, bikinis in L.A. culture. And she started to do actually... Uh, in this unique way, again, kind of a theological assessment of, of how God made, made us as people, uh, what was going on in the culture. Actually, the, uh, the bikini was named after Bikini Atoll, which is one of uh, the sites of an atom bomb test because it was meant to be an atom bomb in the culture. 
The only woman who would first wear it was a, um, they had to hire a stripper to be the model because uh, women would not model them uh, in the beginning. And uh, as we can see over a long arc of history, which she's uh, more articulate at that, than I am at explaining, it's become a cultural norm. Uh, so without saying uh, a wholesale, hey, this is a sinful thing, she said, we want to create options for women to, who don't want to uh, wear this sort of thing, want to have more conservative but fashion-forward one-pieces. She went out into the world and said, everything that is designed for, uh, for people in this age, if, they're, if it's a one-piece suit, is mostly uh, kind of this frumpy uh, deal. So she started uh, Race Swimwear based on the fashion of Audrey Hepburn, a classic timeless uh, uh, set of swimwear. And she's, uh, she's created a, a, a multi-million dollar business uh, that, that sells uh, a, a theology and a cultural analysis uh, demonstrated through a creative response in the swimwear industry. Uh, she's now expanding this out into other clothing lines and things like that. Pretty fascinating uh, example of uh, someone's kind of self-assessment of an industry. So these are just a couple quick examples across uh, a, a variety of <clears throat> places. Um, but one of the questions I want to leave you with is asking you, uh, back to that quote about idea entrepreneurship, what might your cherished topic be? Is there something that, that you care deeply about? Uh, however, however big or small, you might express uh, some creative response to that. Is there something that God has put on your heart that you would like to create around? And <clears throat> in that, I would like to encourage you to think uh, in, in, a, in a broad way, in the pursuit of this, the redemptive edge, think about what, what is it that concerns you in the world? What is it that compels you? What intrigues you? And as you consider different industries and trends and cultural norms and environments that you occupy and shifts in beliefs that are happening, how could you respond to that? These are just, this is just a quick laundry list of different things that I think we should have a, a Christian vision around that someone in the world needs to take uh, a gospel-centric worldview and create from. Uh, whether it's... Uh, our, our views of employee norms in, in management consulting or uh, vacation hedonism in the 21st century or civil discourse in modern media or technology and daily practices or the cultural impact of private equity uh, or brands and identities in developing countries. All these different places we occupy. There's no place, as, as Abraham Kuyper said, every square inch is what God cares about. And so the places that we occupy all have an opportunity for some redemptive edge, something that we can advance because we're in a fallen world. So <clears throat> if you don't feel like, <clears throat> excuse me, if you don't feel like you have a cherished topic or you're wondering where you might get one, I would encourage you to go back to this framework of mind, heart, and context and think about how can you cultivate something in a different way. Can you intentionally choose different pursuits or different people to surround yourself with uh, to help you imagine that? Uh, I'd also encourage you to read uh, the, the book I mentioned earlier, uh, Everyday Theology. Really, you could just read the first chapter if you wanted to by Kevin Van Hooser. And he talks about really two things that I think you could do as an exercise to kind of expand and explore some of this. Um, he says, first, our responsibility is to read the culture, uh, to examine our cultural context, ask what primary narratives exist, who exists, who's saying them in the world, and who are the producers of the, that culture and why do we do it. And then we have to look and say, how do we think the world ought to be? Right? This is that theological and cultural analysis. What do God and Scripture have to say about the topic at hand? And then as we go from reading the culture, that's when we have to, to face the hard work of starting to write the culture. We have to say how our work uh, can really be articulated into the world. What are we writing? Um, what do we want the world to look like through our work? What cultural norms would we try to bend? 
And uh, back to that Fred Wilson idea, what is our kind of big thesis? Do we, do we have a 10-year thesis, a 15-year thesis for where our world is going and how we want to play a role in that? Um, I think you'll find, as, as we do this actually with each one of our entrepreneurs in our program, that challenging yourself to write this stuff down, to put it down, to articulate it, to talk through it with your friends can give you a new imagination for the work that you're doing, uh, which is not only exciting from a perspective of something new to do, but it actually uh, gives us this incredible opportunity to pull deep, deep meaning and our faith into our work lives in a really rich way. And it allows us to set ourselves on a long-term pursuit of the redemptive edge in the place and the sphere that God has allowed us to occupy. So, an incredible opportunity. Now, is it hard? Of course. Of course it's hard, right? It is hard, uh, and, and I don't ever want this to be internalized as uh, anything other than um, something that we are in pursuit of. It's not, a, it's not an obligation for you to shift your industry <clears throat> in the sense that we're supposed to be faithful where we are and do the best that we can. Um, but given that we're here in this room, in this city, in this place, I think we all have a unique opportunity, and we all have the luxury to try things um, that are actually lower risk than perhaps many of the other people in the world. Um, so in the midst of all this hardness and difficulty, though, I want to leave you with uh, one quote that I think is encouraging. Um, it's from uh, a psychologist whose name I have mastered. His name is Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. There you go. About some check into today's conversation. Uh, this is what he says. He says, the unifying similarity among geniuses and innovators is not cognitive, not effective, but it's motivational. What is common among them is the unwillingness or inability to strive for goals that everyone else accepts. I think this is actually a radical statement, especially when you consider that the gospel is a totally different motivation. It should give us a totally different framework and a totally different long-term commitment. And it's saying... You don't have to be the smartest person in your firm. You don't, have to, you don't have to have it all figured out. You don't have to be a charismatic, charismatic genius to shape your industry. What you have to do is know what you're focused on, know what's driving you behind that, and stay committed to it over a long horizon. Uh, what, we've, what we all have probably been familiarized with, this phrase of a long obedience in the same direction. So I hope that you can take these ideas and this framework out and have this deep motivation that allows you to go forward with uh, meaning in the place that you're in.